Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 11th of May, 2022. Apologies, we're running five minutes late, so we're just about uh, 13.05 today, starting with the UK Column News. Your host, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Ian Davis and, and also Debbie Evans. Um, well, we'll get uh, straight on with, uh, with, well, the Queen's speech. And so let's uh, just put this on screen. And this was uh, Prince Charles representing the pre Queen, allegedly, uh, following the crown into uh, the House of Lords yesterday. Uh, and, uh, well, he will sit down and on the throne in a second and look pensively at the crown because the Queen is not there. Uh, and then he will give uh, an even more boring uh, rendition of the uh, Queen's speech than the Queen usually does. Um, so it was quite incredible in that sense. So let's just have a, a quick look at or a quick listen to the uh, first couple of seconds of this. Um, so if we could just uh, bring that on and let's have a look at this. My Lord, pray be seated. My Lords and members of the House of Commons, Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. Her Majesty's Government will level up opportunity in all parts of the country and support more people into work. Her Majesty's Ministers will continue to support the police to make the streets safer and fund the National Health Service so I assume anybody's still awake. I was having trouble seeing him. It was like he was camouflaged against the golden background. There, <laughs> there was so much gold dripping off everything. It was difficult to see the man. Yes. Is, is he is he UK's version of Joe Biden? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, but look, let's uh, let's bring up uh, what Boris had to say then, uh, because uh, this is what they were saying following the Queen's speech. Boris says, your priorities, that's our priorities, our, our priorities, that's their priorities. I hope that's all clear for everybody. So your priorities are our priorities, says Boris Johnson. So let's just have a look at some of the priorities. We'll start with the uh, Department for Digital uh, Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, they're getting on with the job because our, the, their priorities are our priorities and uh, they're getting on with the job and they're going to unleash the digital economy to attract innovation and investment. And what's this all about? Well, basically, uh, there has been this big spat going on for quite some time now with respect to social media companies not paying mainstream media companies for the use of their content. And this, is, uh, this has been a, a really major argument. And so the government is now going to be legislating uh, to make sure that uh, the uh, mainstream media companies are treated fairly uh, and are getting uh, proper payment. So uh, they'll be encouraged to negotiate payment deals with uh, news organizations. And if the negotiations fail, an independent arbitrator would be set up that would be uh, setting a fair price. Uh, and of course, uh, the other things that we all know about are in this list as well, making the internet safer. safer. That's the uh, online safety bill. Uh, they're going to forge new UK laws on data privacy and digital competition. That means that they're going to permit data sharing on a scale we haven't seen before. Uh, they're going to unlock the potential of our broadcasters and protect press freedom uh, because they're going to make sure that uh, broadcasters uh, promote uh, the so-called public interest uh, stories and so on. Uh, but let's see what else is going on from the Home Office. We've got a national security bill 
Uh, and what's this going to do? Well, it's going to make tougher sentences for spies. It's going to restrict civil legal aid for convicted terrorists. It's going to create new powers for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to counter foreign interference in the UK. And it's going to make our country safer. And I feel safer already. Uh, and then we've got a public order bill. And th I th thought this was quite interesting because, of course, we've got the police crime and courts bill, which already has uh, the issue of disruptive, so-called disruptive protests included in that legislation. But they seem to be wanting to create some specific legislation for this now. Uh, so what they're going to do is make sure that locking on will become a criminal offence. And those found guilty of locking on will face up to six months in prison and an unlimited fine. Uh, interfering with national infrastructure will become a criminal offence with a maximum penalty of 12 months behind bars. Uh, and repeat offenders will be given serious disruption prevention orders. I'm sure that's exciting for them. And that's going to make our streets safer. And I'm, as I say, Brian, I'm just feeling massively safe at the moment. Well, I'm surprised, Mike, because I'm feeling massively unsafe because what we're looking at here is a so Soviet gulag system coming in as this vile organization which is running UK at the moment accuses Russia of being the Nazis we've got the Soviet system being unleashed in this in this country it's very clear to see what started happen now um, so maybe I could uh, just briefly welcome uh, Ian onto the program first and say well of course it's interesting that they're making our streets safer by bringing in new legislation because all the headlines in the press with respect to uh, disruption of the M25 and disruption of uh, oil refineries by uh, environmental protesters means that uh, there's plenty of uh, public support for this type of legislation, which, of course, is at the end of the day is all about preventing uh, in-person protest. Yeah, and I think what we're talking about there is the right protesters in the right place at the right time, isn't it, to, to kind of essentially protest in support of government policy, which is... You know, these are the protests that we're allowed to see. Um, you know, they're the protests that are allowed to take place because they advocate, essentially advocate government policy. It's not always immediately apparent how that happens, but certainly when you have people holding up motorways and people uh, doing all the things that you've just, just been talking about, then that's exactly what it does. It promotes the agenda that the, the government wanted to promote. Whereas when we see, you know, how many people in total marched through London over the over the uh, summer of last year, it must. If you, I think if you add it all up, it's got to be two, three million people, which is just completely ignored, totally ignored by the mainstream media, um, and the policies that they're now rolling out and the legislation that they're rolling out is intended to stop those people marching, not the people that are protesting against. Um, roads, you know, it's it's the people that are protesting against against government policy, and and so what we're seeing with this rollout of this kind of policy agenda is absolutely no commitment at all to democratic ideals. There's the total abandonment of any kind of notion that you know that we are um, a democratic society. It just it's just an irrelevant, meaningless term as far as our policymakers are concerned, which is quite obvious. Yes. And uh, Ian, I've got to say, I absolutely agree with that statement. We are no longer in any form of democracy in any shape or form. I've used the expression Soviet. We could describe it as 
communitarian, but uh, one thing for sure is that it isn't the ordinary man and woman in the street who are driving the agenda with our elected MPs as representatives. This is something completely different working. Um, okay, let's move on then, because the next one, of course, is the Human Rights Act reform. And so a modern Bill of Rights is on its way. Uh, and if you remember, this is aiming to strike a proper balance between individuals' rights, personal responsibility and the wider public interest. Uh, this is really about removing people's rights as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, well, they say that crucially, the proposed measures will restore Parliament's role in the as the ultimate decision maker on laws impacting the UK population. Um, and uh, of course, this is uh, because of the notion uh, that uh, the EU has in some way a say in uh, what's going on with uh, human rights in the UK. But of course, that's not true. The European Court of Human Rights is not an EU body. But anyway, uh, and then but this was the one that I found quite interesting. Uh, they are going to bring forward legislation to protect access to cash. Uh, new laws have been introduced to protect access to cash and keep victims of financial fraud, or sorry, and help victims of financial fraud, helping to enhance the UK's position as a global financial services uh, leader. Um, and so what they're saying is uh, that the Financial Services and Markets Bill uh, will ensure the continued availability of withdrawal and deposit facilities across the UK uh, and that countries, the country's cash infrastructure is sustainable for the long term. Cash remains, they say, an important payment method for millions of people across the UK, particularly those in vulnerable groups. And the government is committed to preserving it. Uh, the bill will also enable the payments systems regulators to require banks to reimburse uh, people that have uh, been victims of so-called authorised push payment scams. This is uh, where frauds, uh, you know, scammers uh, deceive consumers or individuals. Uh, to send uh, them payments under false pretenses to a bank account that they control, uh, you know, by pretending about to be a, a business and so on. But I thought, so that, uh, Ian, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that because uh, that, that was probably the, unless you've got something. Well, I, I just wanted to say that when you read the statement to protect access to cash, uh, what I take from that is, of course, the exact opposite, that they're not protecting any access to cash. This is another smokescreen to cover up. Uh, the fact cash is being withdrawn. And why do you say that? Because you can you can apply this to any policy the government comes out with we don't understand. Whatever they say, have a look at what the opposite is and that will be the underlying policy. Is that how you see it, Ian? Uh, yes. Yes, I would agree <laughs> with that. Now, I mean, I think, I think the thing is, it, it's good to see some acknowledgement that cash is necessary. I mean, that's, that's good. But... Um, where, what are they protecting it from? So, you know, if you're going to protect something, presumably it's under threat. So if is cash under threat? Well, we know cash is under threat in terms of the disappearance of high street banks, the disappearance of cash machines, and the disappearance of, of uh, you know, payment via cash at various shops and so forth. So, and online, certainly. So, you know, we're... What we're seeing is a consistent attack on cash. So if they're going to protect cash, how are they going to do it? Does that mean that cash will be, how is it going to be distributed? What are, they, what are their plans? This is new information to me. If, if we're going to protect cash, then that sounds like a good, a good idea. But like Brian, I suspect that if we look at this in more detail, we'll find that actually it's probably another attack on cash. 
Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think that uh, they, uh, this is something they've dropped into this bill. I think we need to look at this bill along with all the others very, very carefully, uh, because of course there's always the headline positive new news, which uh, provides the cover for something else that's going on. How are they protecting cash? As, as we said there, they are protecting the ability to withdraw cash and, uh, and deposit cash. So they're gonna put an obligation on banks to maintain some of those uh, cash machines that they're so rapidly shutting down. Um, but of course, there's no mandate on anybody to accept cash in pay as, as a payment. So in this particular legislation, so, uh, you know, if, if you go into your supermarket and they are not, refu uh, or, you know, they're refusing to accept cash, uh, they're under no obligations. Okay, let's uh, move on to this then. Ian, uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, you published this article on the UK Column website, uh, the truth about Partygate that everyone seemingly ignores. Yeah, um, it, it's funny the things that when you're researching, the things that, that um, do really get under your skin. But um, for me, this has been Partygate and then later Beergate and the whole discussion about, you know, breaking the rules. I, I it, it amazes me the extent to which the mainstream media and all talking heads that are talking about it will not address just absolutely refuse to address what the what it reveals about the people that are making these policy decisions so if we think about what the um uh, if we go on to the the next slide mike yeah brilliant um so boris johnson was supposedly under this intense pressure about partygate and, and and Rishi Sunak were handed fixed penalty notice fines. So there was, and, and Scotland Yard announced that there were more than fifty fines. So this is fifty people who are either policymakers or or bureaucrats that are working with policymakers that are fined for breaking the law in this case um, for having these parties. Um, so if we talk about what John, what was revealed in a, this this Sky News article. Johnson's email said hi to all after what we've been an incredibly busy period. We thought it would be nice to make the most of this lovely weather and have some socially distant drinks in number 10 garden this evening. So, you know, that sounds like a party, doesn't it? And it sounds like a bit of a get together. But so at the time, this is this is Johnson at the time, Oliver Dowden, the same day, um, he, he sort of specified what the rules were, and he said, quote, you can spend time outdoors and exercise as often as you like. You can meet one person from outside your household in an outdoor public place, provided you stay two metres apart. So that's fairly clear. And the same day, the Metropolitan Police, they said, uh, they spelled out what, how they interpreted the rules. You can relax, have a picnic, exercise or play sport as long as you are on your own with people you live and just you and one other person. So the rules were pretty clear. Boris Johnson clearly broke the rules. But the, the point that no one will discuss, and this is what has kind of uh, irked me somewhat, is, is why were the rules in place? Now, the rules were in place for a very clear reason. And, and that, that was a pump, and it was a public health response, supposedly, to a serious and imminent threat. So with the health protection regulations, so it, those regulations made it clear, these regulations are made in response to a serious and imminent threat. That is the point of the regulation. So 
If we move on to what the response to that serious and imminent threat was from the people who are making these these regulations, who are or the leading advocates of those regulations, and I would certainly include Keir Starmer in that, who was consistently pushing for more regulation and tighter lockdowns. We've got Keir Starmer, for example, this was sometime later, but he went, obviously, he was photographed drinking beer and eating canapes and, and having what looked like a pleasant gathering at his, in his Durham uh, constituency meeting. Uh, you've got Professor Neil Ferguson, who ignored the regulations, which his own paper uh, was the was one of the driving reasons why the lockdown restrictions came in in the first place. And those included the idea of the familial bubble, that we shouldn't be going outside of our family and meeting with other people. Well, he continued his affair and broke those. Broke those. Uh, Dr. Catherine Calderwood, who was Scotland's chief medical officer, who was, who was pushing for these restrictions to save the NHS, not only did she break the restrictions, she took her two young children with her to break the restrictions. Um, Matt Hancock, who was, you know, part of the party gathering at Boris Johnson's garden soiree, who, who also broke the familial bubble to continue his affair. Then Dominic Cummins, and Dominic Cummins is perhaps the best of the lot, Dominic Cummins at the time, when he, he said that he thought he had COVID, but would, had recovered from it, so presumably thought he was still infectious, they, he suspected that his wife had an active infection, i.e. she was ill with COVID. They then got in a car and drove 270 miles to Durham, where they met County Durham, where they met their parents. So how is that? a response to a serious and imminent threat. So the, if we think about the, the, the other people that we've been included, you've got Tobias Elwood, we've got Stephen Kinnock, um, Margaret Ferrier MP, Bob Seeley MP. So these are all people who are either advocating for, and if you look at their statements at the time, they were advocating for lockdowns fully 100% on board with lockdown. So the question is, if we if we think about what the real issue is, the fact that the, the issue that nobody will talk about, we have to ask what serious imminent threat? Because these people, these people's behaviour did not exhibit any acknowledgement at all of any serious or imminent threat. So you know, and I'm quoting here directly from the article, by their actions, all of these people have illustrated that they did not believe that there was ever any Syrian, serious or imminent risk from a pandemic disease, yet all have persistently maintained that this threat existed. The real crime exposed by Partygate is not that some of the rule makers became rule breakers, which is the only issue that anyone will discuss, it is that some of the leading architects of the lockdown and social distancing policies that destroyed the economy and instilled fear in every citizen did not for one moment believe that there was ever any public health justification for doing so. And that is clearly evident from their actions, not from their words. So we are faced with 
and, and, and the thing that has really annoyed me, as I've said, about the whole Partygate situation and Beergate and all the other bumps, which ordinarily I would say is an irrelevance, it's a relevant matter. It's the fact that, that people just seem incapable, and certainly the mainstream media are incapable of talking about what it actually signifies. And what it signifies is that people did not believe that there was a pandemic. Uh, Ian, I, I completely agree with your analysis there. I applaud you for that analysis because you've, you've absolutely hit the spot. But the same lying, duplicitous people who clearly knew there was no threat, that, that was the threat that caused, was used to cause huge stress on the rest of the population. They are the people in control of implementing the very policies in the first place. And as, as Mike has just covered in already in, in today's news, we've got yet more legislation coming in where they are looking to close down, control, regulate the public while they've demonstrated, um, you know, what's in their own, the defects in their own heads. This is the really dangerous thing about it. We have elected people. Some of them are just fools. There's no other way to describe them. Many of them are puppets. All of them are arrogant, many of them are ignorant, and yet these are the people we are allowing to drive policy and, and the law in this country. And so ultimately, the fault for what's going on lies with us, the public, for allowing it to happen. Probably I'm as passionate as you are over this subject. Yeah, no, I, no, I mean, I, I would agree. Uh... I also think that, I mean, I think one of the problems is that the, the pressures that people are subject to from those same policymakers and the people that are behind those policies in terms of the propaganda and in terms of the ma manipulation. And I know, Brian, you know, obviously you've revealed a lot about the psychological manipulation of people. So, yes, I fully agree. We are we are complicit in allowing this to continue. At the same time, people are being manipulated into that complicity because of the beliefs that are inculcated into people that are, you know, by, you have to say, when you look at the actions of some of the legislators and some of the people that are making these policy decisions, this is, this is nefarious. This is, this has got an alternative motive and people are being misled, deceived and cajoled and coerced into not only into following pointless lockdown lockdown restrictions but also into responding to crisis whenever that te technique is used and that's that's what we're seeing yeah debbie i wonder whether you've got any thoughts on on this well yeah good afternoon yeah i have actually because as i'm hearing all about Partygate and Beergate. I heard this morning, I believe there are six police officers that have been allocated a full week to investigate Beergate. And yet still, I'm banging, against, banging my head against brick walls, trying to get an investigation against serious adverse reactions. So we know that the government can jump into um, an investigation at pace for, for things that they want to, to distract us with perhaps whereas the big issues that need to be investigated immediately are being ignored yeah yeah 
Okay. Thank you for that, Debbie. Now, if you uh, like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us there and you'd be very welcome in the UK column community. Uh, also, if you, you could alternatively uh, support us via the UK column shop. Uh, but in any case, if you'd like to share uh, any material that you find on the various platforms, that would be great as well. Now, I uh, just want to correct what we said on Wednesday. We uh, were mentioning the Better Way Conference 2022. This is Tess Laurie's uh, conference taking place. Uh, well, it was taking place in Bath. They have a new venue uh, now, so it is going ahead on the dates. So please, uh, if you're interested in that, uh, get involved or get yourself some tickets. Have a look on the website. Yes. Uh, and uh, of course, the uh, Tess Laurie um, interview is now on the UK Column website. Yeah. And encourage people to have a look at that. We've also done what is virtually a transcript of that interview. So you can have a look at the text and see if there's any particular topics of interest. But I would encourage people to look at the full interview because Tess Laurie has some really amazing things to say about uh, what has happened and what's in the pipeline. Uh, and finally, a uh, quick ad here once again for the uh, Northern Lights Convention uh, taking place uh, 13th and 15th of May in Malmo in Sweden. Uh, if you're in that part of the world, uh, then do get along to that because some fantastic speakers at that event as well. Okay, that takes us uh, to Ben Wallace, uh, Brian. And uh, well, we've got a little bit of video. Let's just have a look at that and I'll just then I'll explain what he was up to. Through the invasion of Ukraine, Putin, his inner circle and his generals are now mirroring fascism and tyranny of 77 years ago repeating the errors of the last century's totalitarian regimes. They are showing the same disregard for human life, national sovereignty and the rules-based international system. The very system, not least the United Nations Charter itself, that we conceived together and for which we fought and were victorious together in the hope of saving future generations from the scourge of war. Their unprovoked, illegal, senseless and self-defeating invasion of Ukraine their attacks against innocent civilians and their homes, their widespread atrocities, including the deliberate targeting of women and children. They all corrupt the memory of past sacrifices and Russia's once proud global reputation. The response to this failure by the Russian forces on the ground in Ukraine has in itself been disgraceful display of self-preservation, doubling down on failure, anger, dishonesty and scapegoating. The behavior of the Russian general staff have shown that their own self-preservation comes first. War crimes, targeting civilians, and the casualty rates in their own battalion tactical groups are all secondary concerns. The truth is that Russia's general staff are failing, and they know it. So <clears throat> that was uh, Ben Wallace speaking at the uh, National Army Museum in London. Um, and well, first of all, Brian, the language is pretty disgraceful. Well, I, I think this delivery was obscene. I don't think there's any other word of, uh, word for it. For him to stand there and accuse the Russians of fascism is quite unbelievable. But he's there puffed up, pompous puffed up, reading from a script. So he hasn't got anything in his own head. He's got to read the script that was given to him. And uh, where is he? Is he on the battlefield himself at the moment as he talks about the Russian general staff? No, he's in his smart suit talking in front of some form of shop. It's a wonder anything's in the shop because the economy is the heading in free fall as a result of the decision of 
his government to get involved in this war in Ukraine. Yes. I think he epitomizes everything which is just utterly vile about the government. The arrogance is the main thing, the ignorance and the arrogance. Um, so, of course, we've been bombarded with stories over the last uh, months and years about uh, how Russia is pumping disinformation into the West. Uh, and we've got to be very careful about it. If you were looking closely at that video clip, you would have noticed that there were uh, subtitles in Russian. And the tweet that went out with that video attached was also in Russian. Um, and so once again, uh, the UK government, uh, you know, accusing Russia of doing exactly what it does. Well, as we're, we're describing week on week, the UK is building a misinformation and a disinformation and propaganda system, which makes the Soviet regime uh, look, look, look like kindergarten stuff. So this is really outrageous and despicable stuff. Ben Wallace and his colleagues are the people res uh, responsible for extending this war, and thus they are responsible for the deaths of the Ukrainians and the Russians fighting on the battlefield. There's no question of this. Uh, and of course, they're determined to expand the war beyond Ukraine as well. So uh, here's the latest from uh, Finnish press. Uh, joining NATO, best solution for Finland's security, Defence Committee says. So the uh, this is Defence Committee of the Finnish Parliament, uh, and they have announced their support for uh, Finnish membership of NATO. Uh, the committee chair, who is uh, MP uh, Pateri Orpo, uh, said that their defence capability uh, cap capabilities have good foundation, but uh, they're not adequate to address the changed security situation following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so uh, that's 10 parliamentary committees uh, giving their opinions about uh, possible NATO membership uh, to the Foreign Affairs Committee, and that will then draw up a report. Uh, and, uh, well, just to make sure that that progresses, uh, Boris, in fact, is in Finland and Sweden today. Uh, as, at least according to the, uh, the Finnish press. Um, so he is there to push things along. Um, and uh, so they're saying in, in their meeting, uh, President Nanisto and Prime Minister Johnson will discuss Ukraine and the security situation in Europe. Following their discussion, the President and Prime Minister will hold a joint press conference. Uh, we support countries' democratic capability to decide on things like NATO membership, is what uh, Boris Johnson's uh, team were saying. So... Um, Yes, NATO expansion. Uh, and of course, you may have heard that uh, Japan and Korea also looking at joining NATO now as well. Um, so we're not only putting a ring right around Russia, but we're putting a ring right around China. There can only be, really be one outcome to that. Of course, those countries will respond in a particular way. And, and that was Liz, Liz Trust's global NATO. That's uh, what yes. she was talking about. This is the creation of a one world military system where the only possible enemy must be um, ordinary individuals living on the planet, uh, never mind what country they're in. So uh, very, very dangerous times. And it's clear that we're well outside national politics now. We're into geopolitics. We're into a great reset situation. But let's come and focus just... Oh, sorry, it sorry. just has one comment, if that's okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah, if we, if we think about the situation in Finland and Sweden, perhaps, so the argument from NATO and from them is that by joining NATO, they ensure their security. Now, does that mean that the, that the politicians in Finland and Sweden are stupid or is there some sort of ulterior motive? Because quite obviously, by joining NATO, they increase their threat. Russia are not likely to invade Poland or uh, to invade Sweden or Finland or attack them. 
if they join NATO, the likelihood of that, the risk increases. So they are, it's the opposite of what they're saying. So why are they doing it? Well, we'll probably never know, Ian, because uh, we know that there are MPs in both Finland and Sweden who've been speaking out about the plans. But of course, they never get any uh, UK BBC coverage. They never get any um, U USA coverage. So anybody who dares go against the agenda is simply frozen out. But uh, we wanted to just help people a little bit because there is a great deal of information available on the Internet still about what's happening in uh, the Ukraine. And uh, I just want to take people through a few things and you can decide. So we are not saying this is accurate. We are not saying uh, that it's um, an, a, a tremendously good analysis. We're just saying that you can go to sites where there does seem to be some very good information and we'd encourage you to have a look uh, think about it cross-reference it with other websites in order to get a picture of what's happening now one of the first things you've got to understand is that there is material that will be pro-ukraine there will be material which will be pro-russian uh, this is one particular site war in ukraine that produces some very very detailed maps including uh, labeling which troops and brigades and divisions are active on the ground, as you can see from this map. But this particular site is largely uh, pro-Ukraine, and therefore the analysis will tend to always interpret events on the ground uh, with that um, overview. Nevertheless, we're going to say that uh, the um, detail of the analysis and, and in the maps in particular is well worth a look. But can we also bring you on to this one? Now, this is a gentleman from Singapore uh, operating under the title Defence Politics Asia. Uh, he produces uh, some sometimes short, uh, approximately um, 20 minutes or so, animated map videos, uh, but they're often longer and they usually have a great deal of detail, which he will take you through, including saying, where the source was that he got the information and how he's been able to cross-reference sources. So as you can see from the picture we've frozen on screen, this is the sort of animated map that he will talk through. Uh, it's a moving map, so it will unfold as his analysis takes place. Uh, but on the this particular screen, uh, we're showing things here. So Ukraine at the moment crowing that the Russians are running away around Kharkov because uh, uh, they have withdrawn. Is it uh, a retreat or is it a tactical withdrawal? These are things people need to think about. Uh, but down here, we've got areas with very, very heavy fighting. And the little red um, circles are actually uh, designators for where heavy fighting is taking place. Um, as we move through onto what I've called the Southern Front, uh, it's largely static. And if you want to know what the blue is, this is the gentleman who's analysing the situation has heavily featured on where the Ukrainians have had static defences present for many years, well before the start of this war, and therefore where he can see trenches and uh, likely defensive positions on uh, satellite maps he has emphasized those with a little blue castle, but it does give a very good picture as to how this uh, particular uh, battle is taking place. So those are the blue forts there. 
They are historic, so they could be from eight, 10 years ago, possibly longer. But some of them, of course, have been used by the Ukrainians to help prepare defences against the Russians. And one of the things it does illustrate is that although the Ukrainians might be very stretched on the ground, there is some strength in depth of their defence. Um, defence Politics Asia also zooms in on important areas. And this particular analysis was talking about the critical Russian advances uh, to uh, Poznia, Poznia. And why is this so key? Because this elevated city starts to give the Russians a huge further advantage with artillery over the Ukrainian positions, particularly to the west and the south. But do go and have a look at this material for yourself. You might also like to look at Alexander Mercurius, the Duran and South Front as other channels uh, where there's some very good analysis going on. But if we summarize a bit, and we're going to stick with the fact that the Ukraine is being betrayed by the West, Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are being betrayed. The key factor is they are ignoring the military reality. Uh, Ukraine has no effective air cover or air defense, and this is a critical requirement in any any battlefield, that situation is not going to change. Uh, but this is key. What is emerging is the Ukrainian forces are being held in essentially indefensible positions. Now, some people are saying in their analysis that they're being told by the Zelensky political regime they cannot retreat. But it would also appear to be true that it was difficult for them to at least conduct a fighting retreat because they have no effective air cover. So once they leave prepared defensive positions, they become very vulnerable to attack by the Russians. Uh, number three, um, the Russian withdrawal around Kharkov is erroneously described as a major retreat, whereas the more detailed um, analysis shows that this is actually a tactical withdrawal. And there's some very strange things that have taken place uh, recently and the bridges have been destroyed, which would appear to make the, the Ukrainians even more vulnerable to encirclement. Russia continues to advance, and I've described this as a lava flow. That's my own words, but many of the um, experienced uh, analysis taking place says that the Russians are moving forward as this vast blob. They're not moving quickly, just like a lava flow, but uh, they're causing high Ukrainian casualties and they're steadily increasing encirclement of Ukrainian forces who are holding their positions, presumably because they've been told that's what they are to do. And this is something else that's very important. We've got propaganda everywhere. Western NATO Ukrainian propaganda is Ukraine is winning when the opposite is the real situation. So are we now in the position where the propaganda that Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine is winning is actually influencing very, very bad military decision making. Russia continues to advance, right, as a, we've duplicated that one, uh, but uh, this is the meat of it. Whatever's said, Russia is advancing and the fact it is slow is nothing to do with incompetence. It's to do with the Russians minimizing casualties and uh, making sure that they're going to deal with what is still a very large number of Ukrainians fighting. So Ben Wallace's arrogance that the Russians don't know what they're doing 
Ben Wallace can't even get a fleet to sea in UK without problems with engines. So um, this is where it gets interesting because we've got commentary saying that social unrest has started in Ukraine with civilians protesting that their troops are being unnecessarily sacrificed to the Russian advance in the east, uh, but also in Mariupol. Uh, but these protests are being pretty forcefully suppressed by Ukrainian state police. And we've also got uh, uh, YouTube clips coming up, little phone clips, that remnants of the, uh, the troops in uh, Azovstal are saying that they've been betrayed by Zelensky. So this is pretty heavyweight stuff starting to unfold in Ukraine itself. And what we've got to remember is the US, UK, EU and NATO are pumping in the weapons and munitions. Why? Well, they've declared it to prolong the war to weaken Russia and they want to get Putin out with a regime change. But they know that in doing this, they're killing thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians. They're destroying Ukraine and also they're destroying, of course, the Ukrainian and Western economies. And uh, lastly, we've got the obscenity of the US, UK and EU arms manufacturers. They must love Ben Wallace, Mike. Uh, they're celebrating vast profits while the international banks are taking control of Ukraine by, by loans. And ultimately, the debt means that uh, Zelensky is going to be completely controlled by the West. So we just encourage people to look into that information on the Internet much very good stuff on YouTube. Just keep searching, but do cross-reference. Think about the information and make your own decisions as to what's really happening on the ground. Okay, so this, uh, the uh, uh, UK and the US have pushed this out. Um, so this is new UK and US intelligence. Oxymoron there, I appreciate it, but there you go. Russia behind Europe-wide cyber attack an hour before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, so they're saying Russia has been Behind a series of cyber attacks since the start of the renewed invasion of Ukraine, uh, the, U the EU, UK, US and other allies have announced, and that announcement was made yesterday, the most recent attack on a communications company Viasat in Ukraine had a wider impact across the continent, disrupting wind farms and internet users uh, in Central Europe. Um, so the uh, UK's National Cybersecurity Centre has assessed that the Russian military intelligence was almost certainly involved in this in the 13th of January defacements of Ukrainian government websites and the deployment of Whispergate uh, destructive malware. And they also assess that it is mo uh, almost certain, almost certain that Russia was responsible for the subsequent cyber attack implementing, uh, impacting Viasat on the 24th of February. Um, well, uh, this came, this announcement was released uh, as cybersecurity leaders from the Five Eyes, the EU and international allies, met at the National Cybersecurity Centre's Cyber UK conference in Newport. Uh, and here's Jeremy Fleming, the director of GCHQ. This is what he said. Uh, perhaps the concept of a cyber war was overhyped, uh, but there's plenty of cyber about, including a range of activity we and partners have attributed to Russia. Uh, so it's an admission, it's an attribution, and that's all it is. Uh, that's why we've increased our efforts to ensure UK businesses and government urgently improve levels of cyber resilience and why with our allies we will continue to support Ukraine in shoring up their cyber defences. Well, not to be outdone, uh, Joseph Burrell had something to say on this as well. Uh, he said the European Union and its member states, together with its international partners, strongly condemn the malicious cyber activity conducted by Russian Federation against Ukraine, which targeted the satellite KSAT network 
operated by Viasat. Uh, the cyber attack took place one hour before Russia's unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine on 24th February 2022, thus facilitating the military aggression. Uh, the unacceptable cyber attack is yet another example of Russia's continued pattern of irresponsible behavior in cyberspace, uh, which also formed an integral part of its illegal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. The European Union, working closely with its partners, is considering further steps to prevent, discourage, deter, and respond to such uh, malicious behavior in cyberspace. The European Union. Oh, sorry, that's a duplicate. So there we go. Uh, that's what uh, the EU had to say. Um, but. Uh, well, it's all on the basis of uh, maybes, it seems. Um, and, uh, well, what do we say about that? Well, we say that the West is putting out, is very rarely now putting out any evidence to support the claims that it's made. It's words on the page. But if you say, where is the factual evidence to support what these people are saying, we don't see it. Yes. Uh, but uh, Nadine Dorries, of course, uh, can't be left out of these things. She may not know that Channel 4 is funded by uh, advertising revenue and not the public purse. Uh, but uh, anyway, she was uh, in the EU uh, today to sign a document. Uh, they're well, initially, they're talking about free data flow, sustainability and the framework conditions for digital technologies. Uh, that was the initial uh, program for this uh, digital ministers meeting, G7 digital ministers meeting, which is taking place uh, yesterday and today in Dusseldorf. Uh, but the uh, war in Ukraine has sort of taken over things. So Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine and its digital infrastructure has caused the G7 to not only put the topic on the agenda of the digital ministers meeting in Dusseldorf, but rather we stand more united uh, than before in our joint efforts to protect the criti our critical infrastructure from external enemies. So uh, she was busy signing uh, bits of paper to make another de declaration uh, from the uh, G7 digital ministers. Uh, I'm just proud to be British at this point, Brian. Are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I, I was curious as to what was on her sleeve because on that photograph you, you had on on screen of a, it, it it looked to me like it was a string of Zs, and I thought, my goodness, is she supporting Russia? But that can't be right. No, it can't. So be. I'm not sure. Is that a yellow Ukrainian band? Do we think? Uh, it could be. Well, uh, we don't know. If anybody. Yeah. If anybody can help us out with what the magic dog tag is, we'd love to know. Uh, Ian. Uh, yeah, you often see this, don't you? This language of, um, you know, making things freer, ensuring free flows of information, ensuring that there's free access to the Internet and that everybody and it's an equal playing field and it's all free and it's all wonderful. You don't make something more free by regulating it. You can't make something more free by controlling it. And that's the total oxymoron that they're always peddling. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that, Ian. Um, well, Debbie, let's bring you in. I hope I can do justice to your segment because you've pr provided some really outstanding information today. And we had a few little glitches at the start of the uh, programme. So let's uh, see what we can do with this. But you've been looking in particular at Cambridge university and you focused in on their social decision making lab and following through um, we get some interesting things so this is one of the men you were able to focus in on professor sander von der linden uh, here we are cambridge social decision making lab department of psychology um, now we've got to we will have a little uh, video clip in a minute but first of all tell us what caught your attention with this mysterious lab just the fact that it existed, to be honest. I, I had no idea 
that there was a social decision making laboratory and it was headed by um, such a prestigious young man as Professor Sander van der Linden, who actually comes from the Netherlands. Now, the object of this laboratory, and I'll just read you a little bit of, of what, what they say on the website, is that it explores the social and cognitive psychological processes underlying human social judgment, communication and decision making. That basically means they're investigating fake news, public health, climate change, voting, donating, crime and prejudice. And they're looking at trust, certainty, um, viral spread of fake news, misinformation on social networks. And you know, um, this social decision-making laboratory in Cambridge is, is um, aligned to the cabinet office, to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, to the Department of Homeland Security for Cyber Infrastructure, CISA, um, Yale. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely massive. And as you look at Professor San Sander van der Linden, you find out that he's the professor of social psychology and he's, I mean, he's, he's from the Netherlands originally, but he's been involved with Yale, the London School of Economics. Um, and he, he sort of studies human judgment and communication and how to persuade people and where the risks of misinformation are. And this is all around social media. It's all around um, mainstream media as well, different platforms alternative news broadcasts so this man is very important in in the in the grand scheme of things considerably as he links into the behavioral insights team and i think you're going to show um a video of him in a minute and, and maybe some more slides that will describe what i've said but basically he wants to protect people from fake news by creating a little bit of it himself in order to immunize us from it and he specializes in altruism as well so he's a fascinating character as i'm sure you're going to lead on and and tell us a bit more about brian well debbie it's absolutely your lead on on this because i was just fascinated what you found before we look at the video let's just bring this uh one up on screen because his is uh uh here he is tweeting so very active on uh social media followed by uh, the, none other than Mariana Spring from the BBC. Um, so, of course, she's fully in bed with him. But I don't mean that. Uh, <laughs> well, it's just an expression, isn't it? Uh, in a political sense. And, uh, and uh, what is the agenda? He is working to teach governments, um, large companies, non-government organisations, how to manipulate public opinion through social media and other things. Let's have a look at this uh, little BBC clip uh, where he's talking about one aspect of his work. 
Since the start of this pandemic, stories have circulated on social media, making all kinds of claims about the virus, how to avoid it, what's really in the vaccines. The stories are not true, but people have believed them and it's left them more at risk. Well, now a game has been developed in Cambridge, which aims to act as a kind of psychological vaccine and prevent people being taken in. It's been used by 300,000 people around the world and has now been adopted by the World Health Organization, as our science correspondent Richard Westcott reports. You could say that uh, coronavirus cases have been falsified or that lizard people are behind the COVID outbreak. So let's go with the lizard people for now. Psychologist Sandra is spreading fake news about the coronavirus, but only on a game that he's developed. Who's to say that we can trust this vaccine at all? So far in the last few months, we've had about 300,000 people uh, go through the intervention. Uh, and we've done some testing where we found that the game actually works in the sense that it makes people uh, more skeptical of fake news. Go Viral is designed to act a bit like a psychological vaccine, exposing you to a little bit of fake news so you don't fall for it later on. And now we're going into what we call the fake expert technique. The purpose of the game is to uh, inject people with a sufficiently weakened dose uh, to trigger their mental antibodies, uh, but the dose shouldn't be so strong to actually overwhelm and do people. So it follows the vaccine metaphor that you don't want to actually give people the virus, but it has to be such a weakened dose, uh, often using humor and sarcasm in the game, uh, that we trigger people's motivation to learn more about it uh, and to arm themselves against it rather than actually do it. Meet Rosemary and Donald. They met at a ballroom dancing class more than 60 years ago. Speaking to BBC Panorama, Norwich couple Rosemary and Donald talked about a worrying vaccine video they'd got on WhatsApp. Do not take this vaccine. This vaccine is dangerous. I felt a bit sick, actually, when, when, when I looked at it. And, and I felt a sort of knot in my stomach. I thought, this is horrible. I, I just don't know whether it's true or whether, or whether it's false. They did have the vaccine in the end, but it's the kind of video this game is fighting against. At the moment, we're seeing a huge amount of misinformation about the vaccine and the rollouts of the vaccine, so that's definitely an area that we focus on. In the game, we're teaching people how to spot misinformation about the, uh, the vaccine and whether it's safe or not. So, for example, uh, we show people headlines that say that it's unsafe, that it's been approved, you know, quite fast, and to try to sow doubt about the vaccine efficacy. Uh, as well as the use of fake experts. Uh, and so we expose people to weakened doses uh, of, of this kind of fake news so that when people encounter it in real life, they won't fall for it. Go Viral's now been adopted by the World Health Organization and it's currently being translated into multiple languages. Well, Debbie, a uh, pretty astonishing piece of video there. It seems to me that he's one of the false experts himself, but it did amuse me that when he's sitting down, he's at risk of COVID, and the mask is on when he's standing up, spouting what must be very dangerous nonsense. Of course, he doesn't need a mask. What was your thought on that clip altogether? I'm just like, it's a psyop within a psyop, you know? It's like this huge web that's being, that's being woven to cast fear and confusion um, in everybody. And, and, and they think they can get away with it. And, and you know, uh, this um, this laboratory, a lot of the people that are working within this laboratory are what we call Gates Scholars. I didn't know that Bill Gates has got a big scholarship program uh, where he invites um, 
overseas students to come and have all of their fees, everything paid. Um, and this is in perpetuity. I mean, you know, this is forever at Cambridge University. So there are these uh, Bill Gates scholars and a lot of them are involved in this social decision making laboratory. So this is a big this is a big operation. Uh, yeah, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, look, let's just reinforce some of the things you've said. We'll bring up on, on screen. It's small text, but people can freeze this. So here it is from the University of Cambridge's own website, the Social Decision Making Lab. And this was the little bit that you read out, I think, where it's talking about exploring the social and cognitive psychological processes underlying human social judgments. It's a shame they don't use those those analytical techniques to examine themselves, Mike, in my opinion. But there we go. Read through that. But this is where we start to see how dangerous this is, because uh, we've suddenly seen or you saw jigsaw. Um, let's expand that so we can understand it. Um, Google jigsaw research on online extremism and inoculation. So now we get into this very dirty agenda that if you dare challenge what is health, supposedly health policy, you become extremist. And the point that uh, you're making, Debbie, is if you follow through uh, what Cambridge University is doing, you're immediately linked into all of these other organisations. So as you mentioned, here's Yale, here's Nuffield. Uh, we've got Facebook research, uh, Northeastern University. Uh, we can go on to George Mason University, uh, I'm not sure what drug is. That's uh, something from Holland, I think, the bad news game. Uh, and there, as you described, we've got the Behavioural Insights team and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, Debbie, it's impossible to know what you are dealing with anymore. You think it's just a university to teach young people uh, so they can go out in the world and get a job and presumably... Uh, do something good in society, but actually what the university is, is, is a hub of government. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the more I look at universities, the more I see corruption and they're, they're dirty. You know, the, the universities, can we trust them? Um, I'm beginning to think that we can't and that a lot of these students that are coming from abroad are coming from very poor backgrounds and they're incredibly grateful to anyone that gives them an opportunity to learn and 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 to be able to support their families so you can see where this infiltration comes from and how people are kind of almost coerced through gratitude to follow narratives but the fact that this is going on and as we'll see I'm sure in a minute um, it just gets deeper and it gets darker Deeper and darker. Well, I, I found it very, very cynical that these people should take something which is essentially good altruism and they're going to use it to make their own policies and agendas stick. So you'd picked out these uh, um, little statements here, the nature of viral altruism and how to make it stick. This is van der Linden uh, material and also misinformation, susceptibility spread and interventions to immunise the public. So we're, we're being psychologically attacked. And your point was that when we delve into who is behind some of this uh, uh, policy in the university, or if you, sorry, if you start to investigate the policy, 
and the agenda in Cambridge, what you come up against is the fact many people are actually part of the Gates scholarship. So we stress, we're not saying these people are doing anything wrong, but of course, most of the public have no idea of the, the power of Bill Gates in order to select and train his people. So on the screen, we've got a number of individuals and underlined in red, we can see where these people are are specially selected gate scholars. And uh, of course, we get on to bigger, uh, bigger wigs, bigger people, uh, because we can come into the sort of professor um, uh, level where people are involved in this sort of uh, uh, gates organization. Uh, but this one here uh, is showing how it spreads. So we've got how to change a life. I, don't, uh, I didn't get time to actually have a look at this organization myself, Debbie, I don't know whether you want to tell us anything very quickly about it, but the minimum is that, of course, it isn't just the university. It's a mix of government, private organisations, charities, trusts and NGOs. Uh, do, you, do you want to say anything about this particular one? No, I think you summed it. I think you summed it up. I can't actually, the slide's a little bit small for me to be able to see, so I can't actually see what I've highlighted there. Uh, well, Was it BBC Media Action by any chance? Yes, they're there and also Bill and Melinda Gates, but also Behavioural Insights team and so on. So all the usual suspects are all tied yeah. in with that one organisation. Well, OK, we'll focus yeah. on that a bit, bit more in the future. But this is where it gets utterly fascinating because you're now into trust tech at Cambridge University, disinformation and media literacy research cluster. This is more small text. So let's see whether we can expand this a bit on your screen. I'll read this out and I'll come back to you, Debbie. Uh, the disinformation and media literary research is being carried out by scholars and practitioners committed to exploring and advancing, quote, proactive and creative interventions against disinformation and fake news, unquote. The disinformation and media literary cluster has emerged out of work and outreach conducted by the Cambridge Ukrainian Studies Centre, founded by Dr. Finnin, and the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab, directed by Dr. Funder Linden. So this is really extraordinary. Are we to believe that we've now got a link with this applied behavioural psychology, I'm going to call it propaganda, that is going straight to the heart of Ukraine? Oh, well, from where I'm sitting, I would say yes. And um, if anybody wants to go and have a look on YouTube, they'll see that Professor van der Linden was actually giving a, a, a lecture or a speech at Kiev um, and that there are very strong Ukrainian connections. So obviously we're taking a lot of uh, research from um, things that have been done within Ukraine, but I can see that... Maybe Ian wants to comment on, on this as well. Uh, well, I, do come in, Ian. I just wanted to say thanks to Mike for picking up BBC Media Action in the mix. If we're talking Ukraine, that's automatically BBC Media Action because that pernicious BBC charity helped set up Ukrainian state media. Uh, Ian, I just, uh, just to sort of uh, mention this, I was fascinated with the, the use of the term cluster in that little segment because, of course, that brings us right back to integrity initiative type operation. 
Yeah, um, I mean, one of one of the things I wanted to say was Van der Linden was um, he was part of um, something called the misinformation virus that the BBC put out, which was a radio a radio investigative program that they put out. Um, and this this idea that um, you can inoculate the psych psychology, you can inoculate yourself against disinformation. If we think of the analogy of what, how do we cope with this information? Well, we can cope with it by using, you know, by, by being rational about exercising critical thought. That's how we can genuinely inoculate ourselves against disinformation by looking at the evidence and having the opportunity to examine it. So what they're suggesting is the opposite of that. Again, it's always the opposite. What they're suggesting is that you limit access to information and that acts as some kind of inoculation well van der linden is his work is directly funded by the bill and melinda gates foundation he they put a paper out um it's in the journal of cognition called good news about bad news gamified inoculation boosts confidence and cognitive immunity against fake news that paper was funded by the bill and melinda gates foundation that is the basis of his game. This is the, he's put out this this model that now the World Health Organization, surprise, surprise, have picked up. That that you can use this game to train people cognitively. That work, that initial paper that that is based upon, was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Well, Ian, since we didn't get the opportunity to talk before today's news, you and I haven't spoken. I'm just amazed that you've been able to put that link in. Let's reinforce it by uh, showing this little uh, video clip, which uh, Debbie sourced, which is Cambridge University and Bill and Melinda Gates. can we best tackle food insecurity in Africa? How can we address some of the most pressing sustainability challenges? How can computer simulations improve treatments for some of the most serious diseases affecting human health? The Gates Cambridge Scholarships are a perfect fit with the university's mission, which is to contribute to society through learning, great teaching and outstanding research. Since the first class in 2001, the Trust has awarded more than 1,600 scholarships to outstanding students from 104 countries. And across the world, 1,200 alumni are making an impact in a wide range of fields. By attracting great students from all around the world from vastly different backgrounds, the Gates Cambridge Scholarships enhance our community's diversity and enrich our pool of talent. These women and men are primed to go out into the world and develop innovative solutions for some of the world's greatest problems. Since 1994, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has funded global health and development initiatives and education programs in the United States. In recognition of their work, they recently received an honorary degree from the University of Cambridge. Well, Cambridge is an incredible place, going all the way back to Newton and 
so many incredible things being done here today. Uh, we're very pleased with the scholarship program. Uh, great kids who are going to go out and change the world. And so it's a, a wonderful association and uh, we've been looking forward to the opportunity to, to be part of the ceremony and, and greatly enjoyed it. Well, that's, that's how you do it, isn't it? You, you prime them, to use his word. Groom and, them. You uh, groom them to go out and sell your political agenda to the world. And then you help them into the appropriate positions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of course, there he was mixing with the royalty. So when we saw Prince Charles opening Parliament, is he saying his own words? I doubt it. I think probably what he's likely to be saying is words that he's been briefed on by people like Bill Bill. Melinda Gates, although the happy couple were together then, uh, but of course, Melinda got a little bit upset with his relationship with uh, Epstein. Uh, Debbie, just a couple of uh, comments to finish off. I, I was amazed at what you discovered here and the link through to Ukraine, I think is very important um, as we see the amount of propaganda coming out of Ukraine, but also out of the BBC. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I haven't got anything to add to what you've just said to be honest brian i mean it's it's staggering when when you look into it like that and clearly you know bill gates has got his fingers in pretty much every single pie and let's not forget he's sir bill gates he was knighted yes i'll remain quiet on that yeah okay okay let's uh let's just move on then and uh space uh well good news uh brian good news here's the uk space agency uh, they are very welcoming of the news that the British rocket company Orbex has unveiled its first full-scale prototype of its prime orbital space rocket. It's on screen, as you can see at the moment. Looks very impressive, but it is only a, a, a prototype. Um, and of course, Britain, as we have mentioned before, remains the only country on the planet uh, that voluntarily gave up its uh, satellite launching capability about 50 years ago in order to uh, appease the French, I believe. Indeed, we'll get a, at least get a, a seat in the European Union. Um, so uh, Orbex's uh, prime rocket launching technology readiness represents a significant achievement that brings together key elements of the ground infrastructure and prototype launch vehicle for the first time and is a major step forward for the company and for the UK launch industry. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Debbie in Cornwall, uh, where we're going to be launching some of these uh, suitcases into uh, into space in the not too distant future. Um, this is the first satellite launch from the UK. It's going to take place this summer uh, as Prometheus 2 takes off from Spaceport Cornwall in Newquay. Uh, it's going to be launched uh, through Virgin, uh, and uh, uh, but the satellites themselves, uh, based by space, In Space Missions Limited, uh, these are defensive, so two sh uh, shoebox-sized satellites they're being called CubeSats. They're going to provide a test platform for monitoring radio signals, including GPS and sophisticated imaging, paving the way for more collaborative and connected space communication system with our allies. So this is a defense initiative, as I say. Uh, and then here is uh, Jeremy Quinn, who's the De Defense Procurement Minister. Uh, and uh, he was uh, speaking uh, at a defense space event a couple of days ago. Our launch of the Defence Space Strategy in February, coupled with our first integrated national space strategy and the establishment of our Joint Space Command, uh, paves the way for the UK to become a more resilient, more robust and more significant space player on a global stage. Are you impressed? No, I'm not, because we can't run a traditional military system. We can't get ships at sea. We've got virtually no aircraft. 
the army's in a pitiful state, but we're now moving on and saying, well, don't worry, because we're going to be really good in outer space. Yes, amongst these investments was a pair of tiny shoebox-sized satellites forming the Prometheus 2 mission and destined to have an outsized impact. Uh, Ukraine has confirmed, well, you also mentioned this during his speech, Ukraine has, Ukraine has confirmed a fundamental shift in the dial. Space capabilities are vital for us today, uh, but will be even more critical for our tomorrow. Uh, and he said the Kremlin's disinformation <laughs> narrative, actually, let's not address, address it up here. Their lies have been made to appear clunky, outdated and absurd. Uh, well, yeah, OK. Uh, we'll just move quickly on from that. But basically, the point here is that uh, space increasingly being militarized um, and uh, uh, and not just through specific military operations like this uh, or applications like this, but also by piggybacking on top of uh, uh, sort of civilian infrastructure as well. Uh, but let's move on to the EU then. And uh, here is uh, the wonderful, uh, oh, his name escapes me. What's his name? Macron. Oh, yes, that's right, Macron. Yes, he was speaking in, to the European Parliament yesterday because he wants to create a new form of the EU. Um, so uh, he was speaking before the European Parliament on their uh, future, Europe's future conference. And so he wants to create a new European political economy. This is basically EU light. And he's invited Britain to join. And the usual suspects have, uh, are shouting about this uh, no way sort of thing uh, at the moment. Uh, but he's saying this new European organization would allow democratic European nations adhering to our core values to find a new space for political cooperation, cooperation in security, energy, transport, uh, infrastructure investment and the movement of people and in particular our youth. When he says security there, he also means defense. Uh, joining it would not prejudge future membership of the European Union and it would not be close to those who have left the latter. So the key thing that the EU is concerned about at the moment is that perhaps uh, there may be some divergence in rules applying in the UK and the rest of the EU. So they're basically creating this uh, to try and invite uh, the UK back in on a sort of EU light basis. And that, of course, would maintain uh, parity between uh, what's going on here and what's going on over there. Uh, now, moving quickly on to uh, uh, climate change issues. And I just uh, wanted to put a smile on everybody's face uh, because uh, this is about Panorama Wild Weather, BBC One, which was broadcast originally on the 3rd of November 2021. There were a number of complaints made about this. Um, and uh, the complaint said, the, uh, at least the uh, BBC's complaints unit, considered two complaints about information contained in this programme. In the first, a viewer complained that in the introduction, the presenter incorrectly suggested that the death toll from extreme weather-related events was rising uh, and expected to rise further. The second complaint raised concerns that the program inaccurately asserted that Madagascar was on the brink of the first famine caused by climate change. Uh, the ECU considered both complaints in the light of the BBC's editorial standards relating to accuracy. So remember, this was published or this was originally broadcast in November last year, uh, and it's taken them until May to actually come to a conclusion. Uh, but the conclusion is that in the ECU's view, the wording of the introduction, which stated, quote, the death toll is rising around the world and the forecast is that worse is to come, uh, end quote, risked giving the impression that the rate of deaths from extreme weather related events was increasing. In fact, as noted in a recent report from the World Meteorological, Meteorological Organization, despite the number of weather related disasters, uh, the number of deaths caused by such disasters has fallen uh, and then uh, and so on. So they were they were pretty heavily criticized by that. But if we just put that back on screen a second, uh, there is the uh, 
the guy who was uh, in charge of, uh, sorry, his name escapes me at the moment, of the uh, Wild Weather, uh, Justin Rowlett, that's who it is, of the Wild Weather program. Now, his sister uh, is uh, part of the Insulate Britain campaign. Uh, so clearly this guy is independent from, you know, and giving a balanced view. Uh, but let's just look at what the ECU decided the action was going to take, they were going to take. And it is the finding has been reported to the board of BBC News and discussed with the programme makers concerned. Appropriate clarifications will be added to the iPlayer versions of the programme. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, meanwhile, you know, as the way the law's going, anybody who's uh, running a social media platform and they put out something and they make a mistake like that, they're branded as misinformation. Yes. But of course, you know, if it's the BBC, probably it isn't true is the starting point. Uh, indeed. Now, of course, uh, BBC licence uh, is, uh, the money is gathered by Capita uh, and Capita also has responsibility for running the British Army's website uh, and particularly their careers uh, website. Uh, but if you want to join the Army at the moment, unfortunately, the careers website doesn't work. Uh, in fact, if you click on the uh, start my application button, uh, it takes you to this page which says technical issues. And this has been running for months now, Brian. So uh, never mind uh, uh, engines and ships. We can't even get a website to run, uh, bearing in mind that Capita is getting millions and millions of pounds for this. And so if you want to apply, there's a link there which takes you through to the uh, Total Jobs uh, website where you can uh, apply through Total Jobs. So Total Jobs, a fraction of the budget of, uh, of Capita, but they seem to be able to run the, uh, the, the, the infrastructure to, to apply for uh, uh, a job with the military in the UK, the Capita can't. And some great reframing because to be a regular soldier on the battlefield, you're going to be sat in some form of recreation space with a mask looking like a young nurse, I think, uh, administering a, a vaccine about which you know nothing. Yes. Um, right, uh, 22 past. Do we have time to, to move on? Well, well, what are you going to give? What are you going to give us? Five minutes. Five minutes. There we are. All right, Deb, Debbie. Just uh, we've got five minutes to have a look at a little bit more of your material. Um, I'm smiling here because while we got the chaos in the army, you came up with some fairly direct statistics on sums of money that had been magicked up and spent by the government. So just take us through this little graphic. We'll pop it up on screen. And uh, the one top left that you come straight into is all matters furlough, 100 billion. These are all pounds. So uh, take us through what you saw. Well, it was actually as a result of um, our interview with Dr. Tess Laurie. And she was talking about the price of ivermectin because, of course, it's, it's, it's absolutely it's cheap as chips. Um, and where, of course, they're using all these extremely expensive therapeutics. Um, and all these, um, there's money come from nowhere. And I suddenly thought, do you know what? It's almost as though they've deliberately bankrupted the world, deliberately on purpose, intentionally planned to bankrupt, not just the United Kingdom, but the whole world. And I thought I'd just go and have a look at a few of the statistics. And um, well, I mean, they speak for themselves. The fact that, you know, test and trace, 37 billion we've spent on it. And now we're being told, or at least there's been a report come out to say that we've maybe overdone the test and trace it a little bit. Uh, yes, uh, we're looking at 8.7 billion for PPE. Um, the COVID app cost 76 million in the first year. And I mean, I mean, well, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely astonished, really, when you, when you look at price 
of test and trace or at least what's been allocated to it and that it's exceeded the whole of the home office budget and you know I, i've i've gone around from different sources to look for how much does people how much did ppe cost in the uk how much did test and trace cost um, and most of those sources are the bbc so um, I, mean, I mean there's hundreds more but we have spent billions and billions and billions trillions on this covid industry and yet what have we received for it it was completely unnecessary so by it being unnecessary am i just being a little bit too cynical in thinking that this was a deliberate attempt to bankrupt the whole country very quickly ian any thoughts on what debbie's just said i think i think debbie's absolutely spot on that is i mean currently Money has no object for the ma in the magic money tree because you can just QE it into existence or borrow it into existence ad infinitum. It is it heading towards being completely valueless? And I would suggest that yes, that is that is the objective. That is the the objective is to is to render the economy totally dysfunctional because if you render the economy totally dysfunctional, you can build it back better. Which means different. Yes, which means transformed, which means worse. So there we are. There is the reversal, which I mentioned earlier in the news. Well, I'm, I'm going to thank you, Ian and uh, Debbie. Thank you very much for joining us. I think it's, it's been an excellent UK column news today. There is so much to report. Unfortunately, most of it at the moment is bad. But until we can see what's really happening, we can't do anything about it. And uh, can I just end by saying that if you're watching us and you are Ukrainian, or you're possibly watching from Ukraine, uh, the UK column feels for you and what is happening to your country. Uh, but it's really vital that the Ukrainian people realise they have been utterly conned and betrayed by the UK, the US and indeed NATO and the EU. Statistics that I saw online uh, last night showed estimates that 30% of the Ukrainian economy has now been utterly uh, destroyed. Millions of Ukrainians dis di displaced overseas. And uh, to attempt to blame this war on the Russians, as the West is attempting to do at the moment, simply outrageous. But do we feel for Ukraine? We absolutely do. And we hope by bringing out some of the facts and truths, we can help to bring uh, the war to a quicker closure. We'll say thank you very much to everybody for joining us. Thank you if you're a supporter, donator and a member of UK Column. Um, please share our material and, of course, spread the word. Thank you. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Thank you for joining us.